This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik, a progress company. Hello, and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Jimmy Bogard. Hey there. And today we're going to be talking about running a successful open source project. Now, Jimmy, you're the chief architect at Headspring. Uh, Why don't you give us a little information about what you do? Sure, yeah. I've been at Headspring, which is a software consulting company for, gosh, a little over seven years now, which is like an eternity in the software world to be somewhere that long. Um, and mainly what I focus on there is just ensuring the delivery of all of our, our projects. So both the design and execution of them, just to make sure everything is going smoothly. Um, and I also focus on, focus on uh, making sure that if we have things across projects that we can leverage, like open source things, for example, that uh, I, you know, I can see across all the projects, so I'm able to, to go in and pull things out and make sure we can use those on the next ones. Now, Jimmy, I asked you to be on the show today uh, because you have a successful open source project uh, for the .NET framework called AutoMapper. And it has right now about 2 million downloads and it's been active since 2011. So how, how did you get started with AutoMapper and kind of, kind of give us a rundown of what it does? Sure, so in the beginning, well, at least in the beginning of ASP.NET NBC, we were on a, a fairly ambitious project. We were it was a it was a project for the state of Texas in which we were replacing every single county's juvenile case management system. Which I know that sounds extremely sexy, but but stay with me here. <laughs> um, so it was uh, gosh, 2007 or so, 2008. I I don't know. Pretty much as long as I've been at Headspring, this thing has been going on. And uh, we were at the very beginning of the project, and we were just getting started with ASP.NET MVC, which at the time was like preview three or something. So they, they just added like filters to MVC. And at that point, like, okay, now we can use it because we absolutely hated web forms and wanted to have something that we knew was going to scale in the long run. And uh, part of it, the way we were, we were trying to build the application was uh, we, had, we had seen what some other MVC projects out there have done like rails and monorail and things like that and one of the things i really didn't like how those other ones worked was that they tended to expose like back-end entities directly to front-end pieces so things like uh, well in nbc terms like you would have an entity as the action parameter so request parameters would be bound directly to something that would then be saved to the database which I thought it was a horrible idea, and I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to have something that separated my backend entities from front-end sort of concerns. Because the other thing we noticed was that MVC, uh, just like a lot of other front-end technologies, really likes things that coming out of the coming out of in and out of HTTP requests to be very kind of DTO-like, which is data transfer objects. So very. Uh, just highly data focused and just, you know, basically bag of properties of getters and setters. Uh, so I didn't really want to force my backend entities to have a certain shape or function just because the front end required it. Uh, again, this was 
trying to make this thing live as long as possible. So we had this idea that, okay, instead of exposing these entities directly to the front end, instead what we'll do is create uh, an object that represents the data I want to see in the screen. And we called these things view models. And this was around the time MVVM was also coming around. So it was, we saw the MVVM patterns like, yeah, that's kind of what we want to do. We want to have like the backend models our database entities, and we want to keep those separate from the front-end view models. There's something that is just built for these different screens. And one of the other things that you notice is that if we built these view models to be these really dumb data objects, these dumb flat data objects, whatever, then the things that we could use to help build out the UI part, these view models, could also then be used for binding request variables and form posts and form gets for like well, any sort of form. So it wasn't another sort of handy thing that these view models could be used in both cases, provided that they were very, uh, very minimal to serialization sort of concerns. So, okay, long-winded thing to say, we wanted to have something separate be our view model besides the database entities. And thought this was a fantastic idea, except we were looking down the pipe of a system that we knew was gonna have like hundreds and hundreds of screens. Uh, this system in particular was intended to be used by uh, between 15 and 20 different government agencies in the state of Texas, each of with their own users and roles and concerns and whatever. And in fact, I think when I, uh, the last time I checked out the project, which is actually still under active development being updated and released today, I had something along the lines of like, oh gosh, let me see if I can get this right. I had over a thousand actions controller actions, which means it wasn't necessarily unique screens because actions have both a get and post side to them, but roughly seven, six to 700 unique screens to it. So you're talking about a lot of views and a lot of view models. Yeah, yeah. And one might say that you shouldn't build applications that big. And I would probably be inclined to agree with them after my experience. But in any case, I would still have to build that many screens, just maybe not in one single application in the future. But I'd still have to be building that number of screens. If I have that number of screens, and I'm then I'm building on top of an architecture in which I have this view model object that looks an awful lot like the entity object, but basically it's kind of like what a database be, database view is to a database table, where I have a very well defined contract of what the model looks view model looks like, but how it gets populated from the back end is kind of an implementation detail. So I saw like I was going to have hundreds of these things. And what I didn't want to have happen is have to hand code all of this stuff to transfer data out of my rich domain model, entity model, into these very flat, dumb DTOs. And then not only have to write that code, but write tests for that code. So I wanted to have something that could just do that for me. And at the time, you basically had two choices. You could suck it up and just write that code yourself, or you could use like code generation style utilities to generate the code that would translate the data from one point to the next, uh, one from one, one object model to the other. She's talking about things like T4 templates. Exactly, which I think may have been a thing back then. I don't really remember, but <laughs> uh, in general, I'm, I'm more or less against the idea of code generation uh, just because you always need to update that. And anytime you have some sort of like two-way updates, like make sure that I code generate it again, but don't overwrite the existing changes. That's yeah. when you get things like partial classes come into play because partial classes are just like sort of a way around the 
limitations of cogeneration. So I knew like cogeneration in general, I disagree with as an approach uh, because of its limitations. So I wanted something that didn't use that. So the idea was that I would build a library that would, uh, based on conventions of what your destination objects look like, could automatically copy data from one side to the other. And we had a, had a couple design goals in mind here. Uh, one is I wanted to be convention-based. That is, I didn't want to have to specify all that left-hand side, right-hand side stuff. Because if I was having to specify it, then I should just code it. Because like writing that, copying one data from one object to another, that code isn't hard to write. And the point of this is just to not write that code in the first place, to have something do it for you. So to do a bunch of configuration, then there's really no point to it. In fact, it's even more obscure because you can't see when I'm looking at a piece of code that's doing this automatic mapping stuff. Like, what is it doing? Well, I should just know what it's doing based on the source and destination types, what they look like. I, don't, I shouldn't have to go some other config to be able to look at that. So that was goal number one, uh, was to have something convention-based to more or less enforce what the destination type should look like. Uh, the secondary concern was I still wanted to have some tests around those conversions because if I'm removing code that writes object like writes data from one object to the other and it's just happening for me, well, you could still have this situation where I have some refactoring and I rename something or remove a property. Well, in the situation where I'm writing the code manually, the refactoring will update that code. If that code is not being written and it's just all happening automatically, if I rename something, then the system's not going to just know to automatically remap those properties. It just doesn't work that way. It's all just based on inspecting two types. So I wanted to have some sort of safety net that said, you know, based on these configurations and an understanding that you want to have everything on the right hand or on the left hand side be populated by something on the right hand side, then run a simple test that just says, make sure everything that you specified on the left hand side DTO objects is populated. So Getting rid of the code that I was already going to write was design goal number one. And design goal number two was make sure I still have some sort of safety net in terms of testability that if I have some sort of like rename or I misspell something, that something tells me something's messed up. Otherwise, I don't see that until runtime. So that's basically where it started out was just, you know, very simple use cases. I mean, it literally started with a failing test of like, I want this thing to work. And then I wrote code until that thing worked. And then just basically added on from there and eventually uh, released it as an open source project. Uh, first actually on Google code. So it's, 2011 was the first NuGet package, but this is this project has actually been around since 2008-ish, 2007-ish, eight perhaps. Uh, so I think it'll be coming up on, the code itself coming up on eight years old uh, like August, September-ish. That's an extremely good track record for an open source project, in my opinion. Well, at least it hasn't been abandoned yet. <laughs> like many other projects I've used that have been over the years. Uh, and I, one of the reasons why I think it hasn't been abandoned is a couple of ones. Um, one is I still use it uh, all the time. So like almost every single project that we have at Headspring uses AutoMapper unless it's not a .NET project, if it's just Java, which I think actually even has its own AutoMapper these days. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's, you know, there's some guy wrote me one time, was like, hey, I love your project, isn't it like it's for Java? Like, no, but you can do it. <laughs> so Inspiring. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, 
But the funny thing is, though, I talk to the F Sharp guys and explain what I'm doing, and they're like, that's just a language feature in F Sharp. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> that always makes you feel good, right? Yeah, I was like, oh, well, okay. It's like, this is something we get for free. <laughs> yeah, get for free. Oh, okay. That's good to know. I'll just continue over here doing my stuff. Uh, it has it has evolved a lot over the years in how I use it. Um, one of the things about having one of these really long-lived open source projects is a lot of decisions you thought were really brilliant ideas you know, five years ago aren't so brilliant these days. Um so you get to kind of see like decisions you made and assumptions you made, how, you know, what they play out over a very long time. Yeah, that's one thing that we do to ourselves and our, you know, on our own projects that we see behind closed doors. You know, we look at something five years ago and you're like, oh, what buffoon wrote this? And you're like, oh, yeah, it was me. Yeah. But when you put I... it out there and everybody <laughs> can see it, you kind of have to own up to it. <laughs> You know, that's one of the reasons why I never, I don't really like the idea of using GitHub as your resume because I'm, I mean, code wise, I'm, I like the things it does, but you know, I don't, I don't spend just a ton of time just refactoring endlessly to make it as beautiful as possible. It's more just like, it does what I want and I stop there. So when did you notice the Automapper project was getting some steam online? Um... Well, I mean, I when I first blogged about it, it was probably the first time, and I, I waited a very long time to actually do this because I wanted to really make sure it was something important. Um, in fact, one of the very first uh, all.net conferences, I, I pulled one of the, my, the guys I respect the most to the side. I was like, hey, I got this really cool idea. Um, and he was like totally disinterested in it. Uh, which I was, was very discouraging me, but I learned out. I learned later that uh, he was he was leaving .NET to go to Ruby, and so he could like give two flips about what <laughs> I was doing in ASP.NET NBC. Um, and he also went to go start his own like really successful open source project, um, uh, an option like some add-in to Backbone. So he's like one of the big Backbone guys. So I was like, okay, so he had other things that was going on, so I don't feel too bad. But I waited a very long time. I think it was something like a year before I even announced it to say, this is a thing you should use. Um, and it was that blog post that really told me that it was something that, that I was onto something. Because uh, I think even today, it's still looking at my blog traffic, it's still like my number two or three uh, most hits page on my blog every year, even though the blog entry itself is now like six years old. So once it started to get popular, did you start getting requests for you know additions to it, new features, support requests? Uh, no, how do you no, handle I mean, some of that stuff? It was basically stuff? done. That was it. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so very early, very, I did early on. I didn't get a lot of requests for things because open source back then was actually kind of hard. Um, I was on Google Code at first, uh, so it was even it was on Subversion. Uh, <laughs> Not to mention there's something extremely rare in .NET back then. Um, well, I mean, my choice was, was at the time, Google Code or CodePlex. And CodePlex at the time was only TFS, and I hated TFS, so I didn't do that. Uh, at least the source control part, I don't really know the rest of it, but the source control part of TFS is, um, was at the time much worse than even Subversion. Uh, so yeah, I did Subversion on Google Code, I actually switched to CodePlex for the project side of things. So like issues and junk like that. 
And then I switched from Google code source code to GitHub source code. And then finally moved the project from CodePlex to GitHub. Uh, that's, that's how long this freaking project's been around. It's, it's, it's gone through so many different hosts of where the code is. Uh, so once I noticed that it hit, went to GitHub, um, I did start to see a lot more people contribute to it just because GitHub makes contributing open source a lot easier than it used to be. Um, and even the past couple years, I've seen that ratchet up even more because as more and more people are familiar with Git, I used to have to, when someone wanted to contribute something, I'd have to, I'd have to teach them how to use Git in order to contribute, um, which is fun and all, but not something you know I'm already stretched thin as it is just trying to contribute to my own open source projects. Helping other people with Git is even more time I'd have to worry about. So these days, I don't really have to do that anymore. People just kind of know how to use Git, how to use GitHub. And so I'm seeing a lot more uh, interesting contributions and things like that. Yeah, that's been a great thing about GitHub is it gets more people, you know, self, uh, I don't know the, the term for it, uh, self-supportive, uh, you know, able to get on there and make their own pull requests and try to get involved in a project. Oh, yeah, you, definitely. Trying to send emails back and forth or something. I even had, like... Uh, just random people, like the, the logo, for example, that was just some random person like, hey, I made this logo for you. Completely, I, completely unasked for it. It's just, oh, thank you. Um, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, with 2 million on just NuGet alone, uh, there's, there's got to be, you know, at least a million or two users out there that are using the product. You're going to have some fans or of some kind. Uh, that want to support it somehow. Um, and it's nice to have the folks that are, you know, design inclined to jump in and make up a logo or a web page or something for you. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, I've actually been pretty lucky with AutoMapper in that because I use it on my day job, uh, I, can, I, can, I can use my day to, if something is needed for something, then I can actually develop the feature for it. Um, I, I feel really bad for the people that do OSS that it's not as part of a project they're on. Like it's not, it's not for an actual real client project. Uh, cause otherwise I don't know how I have time for things, but that basically is what has helped me a lot over the years is I don't really, I used to develop a lot of features that I wouldn't use uh, or I don't use that people would say, Oh, would it, could, wouldn't it be nice for it to do this? And I, you know, I couldn't disagree with them. Like, Oh yeah, I would, I guess it would be nice for it to do that without any, any real understanding of, you know, I've never needed to do that, but it certainly sounds useful. So your work environment's been supportive of it? Well, yeah, because we, we use it to help deliver our client projects faster. So why wouldn't we? Um, so they've been very supportive because it's, you know, I, I, I use it in help to help deliver success for our clients. So it kind of makes sense that I'm able to use my time for that. And they don't mind taking, you know, code that you've written for uh, Project at Work and making it public. Uh, no, well, because uh, it's it's been open for since the beginning anyway, so it's just basically uh, not much different than any other code we use these days. I mean, most of the platforms that I build upon these days are open source. I mean, MVC is open source. Um, gosh, how much of the .NET framework is getting open source these days? So it's uh, it's very difficult to actually 
build something that's not built on top of open source technologies. You have to really, really try hard not to. Um, and I feel really bad for those people that do. So has anybody uh, on GitHub uh, created any major features or anything for it? Uh, yeah. Um, some that I actually do, did use. Um, one of the biggest ones probably was uh, there's, there's a piece in AutoMapper now that uh, does, helps you build out link projections. Uh, this is actually the biggest way that we use AutoMapper today at uh, in my company here. Um, the idea is that uh, the original version of AutoMapper, it would populate some database entities and then you'd map those database entities into your DTOs. Uh, so it actually like pull back a lot of data to populate those database entities, and then a subset of that data would make it into your DTO. So in the beginning, it was a little bit more expensive process because I'd bring back all this data to build DTOs. Um, and what I use today now is this idea that uh, if you know Entity Framework and Link and stuff like that, there's the piece of Link that is the select part most people don't actually use that, but if you're using DTOs and view models, you do use that because you're going to project from your database entity into your DTO object. And what the entity framework provider or whatever link provider will do is translate that select projection into the actual select projection in SQL. So what someone added to AutoMapper was the ability for you to take your AutoMapper configuration and create the select link projection as an expression and then that would be fed to your link provider so that your actual database query uh, gets changed underneath the covers and it skips the entire entity, domain, data model, whatever you want to call it, completely and goes straight to your DTOs. So it's about the most performant thing you can do. And then at that point, it actually does closely resemble a database view because the SQL itself is getting modified to only select the exact data you want for that DTO. And that, until whole, that whole feature was given to me by someone else that just said, hey, this seems like a cool idea. What do you think? And at first I thought, oh, you have so many limitations, blah, 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 blah. But these days it's my primary use of it. And in fact, I kind of don't want to use the other part anymore because it's such an awesome thing to be able to go straight to the database and get exactly the data you need and not have to worry about like all those stupid ORM things of like, uh, lazy loading problems, select in plus one problems. Like if you project straight from the SQL, you can't go back and get more data. It, it selects exactly the data you need and never have to worry about those lazy load of problems ever again. So it's, it's a really cool feature that I thought was gonna be kind of a, a very niche sort of thing, but it turned out to be uh, my primary use of it these days. Yeah, and that goes back to the, the comment about, you know, it's good that work supports this because now you just got an amazing feature to make your job easier at work. So the fact that they're supportive of the project, you know, it, it's benefiting them in that way as well. Yeah, and that's uh, pretty much all my open source projects are like that. Um, they're, they're, I don't really build open source projects for just like experimentation purposes. Everything I, 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 my focus is really extracting out things we're already doing and then putting it in open source so that it's easier to leverage on the next project and the next project and the next project. We have to keep reinventing the wheel. Uh, so, like me personally, when I look at my success of open source projects, um, I actually did this at the .NET Fringe keynote. And I said, here's my OSS resume. I actually just went to NuGet and showed the packages that I have out there. 
uh, under my user. So these are my open source projects. And for me, I consider everything on that list a success. Um, even, a, even one project is called uh, the Ninecat package, which all it does is, that actually was an experiment. It uh, just pops up a browser and opens up a Ninecat page. You do NuGet install package because it just can I just can I run arbitrary processes was my experiment there, um, but everything on there I found is I, I consider success because those are all things that I was able to take and leverage across multiple clients so that uh, every client doesn't have to start over from, from scratch and what we're delivering for them that you know I can I can keep building and building building on top of uh, what we're doing here. I think another thing that helps a bit too is uh, the auto mapper project's pretty well documented, um, and that's probably. <laughs> you know, some people benefit. may disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it was too bad. I thought it was good. I've I've actually used it quite a few times. So, I, that is one thing that I had to force myself to do, uh, because no one really enjoys writing documentation, mainly because, like, since I wrote it, I know how it works. So why am I telling myself? what I already know. But uh, as someone that wants to, I wouldn't say I want to increase the popularity of it. It's more just I want more people to be able to leverage the benefits of it. That if I'm able to explain what's in there and how it's to be used, then more people can get the benefit of it of something I really truly believe in. You know, I wouldn't do this just for, you know, for fun. This is something I actually see such a huge benefit in our projects that I'm trying to make sure other people get that same benefit as well. So I had to change my approach to even how I do releases and how I build stuff out. Like there was a, there was one release in which I added code comments to the public surface, or the public API surface of what I wanted to support. So there are a lot of public things that I hid it and I didn't hide, but I put them in things like internal namespaces that are just, I don't depend on these things directly. They're just internal stuff, but I just don't want to mess around with the, the internal keyword, so just, you know, sticking in there. But then I made a commitment that, you know, every new method I add would have uh, documentation for it. And the other big thing I did was, as part of my GitHub releases, uh, every new feature that I list out will include a link to the wiki page that describes how to use that feature. So it forces me to document all the behavior that I'm adding to the system I don't know if I've gone back and done all the existing behavior, but that's something that I've, I've done going forward um, so that my auto-generated release notes, I don't, I, don't, I don't fully publish the release until I've gone and made sure everything has a link describing how that feature works. I think pro uh, proper documentation um, is part of having a project that's you know, open source project that's successful, you know, people won't be able to use it without documentation. And also the fact that you have documentation means you have less stack overflow questions coming at you. <laughs> I've seen, um, I've actually tried to answer some of those before, but I've seen that you, you go on there and answer questions about automap around stack overflow as well. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, all my open source projects, I'm, I'm subscribed to notifications for those tags. That's, uh, I think about half the success of an open source in the world is GitHub and the other half is Stack Overflow that anyone can answer questions and get, you know, fake internet points. But <laughs> I, before all I had was a mailing list and people would be like, hello, are you going to answer? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, it's a lot of work too. Um, and it's formatted wrong and email is just kind of lousy in terms of 
like trying to diagnose or, or fix your problem. I mean, I still have a mailing list, but we, it's, it's more for just like the questions that Stack Overflow would reject go to the mailing list. But if you want to get an answer and want to get an answer in a timely fashion, like Stack Overflow is the place to go. So I go there and I may answer it, but you know, someone else often does. Like by the time I usually get my notification that there's a new question for Automapper, I go log in and someone's already answered it and it's already been accepted. So like, oh, okay. You, you can get the points. So having a successful open source project like this, has it made you a millionaire? Are you rich yeah. and famous now? No, no, no. I mean, I, that was never my goal with any of this was, uh, in fact, I even, I, I had to start doing this whenever I do talks and whatnot, just to say like, oh, and by the way, I'm the person behind Automapper because I don't, I don't like wear t-shirts with it or anything like that. I don't, I don't know if I should or not, but just more, you know, this is just something I built to help me out. And I think I could help other people out, but I'm not really looking for it to uh, give me fame and fortune. I don't really know anyone that does have that. And if I did, I'd probably stress out way more about it and feel obligated to do a lot more. And I'm pretty happy just like adding stuff that I need for my projects and, you know, telling people that they should use it too, because it helps us out. Yeah, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or anything, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some people might do that with their projects um, because maybe they're looking towards a career or not happy with the one they have, and they're looking at, for their open source project to maybe get them in the door somewhere or you know gain them some popularity so they can put it on their resume or something like that, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean... I that was my first open source project, to be honest. Um, my first open source project was I consider unsuccessful because uh, it was a it was a BDD uh, behavior driven development library, something or other, and it was developed purely out of boredom. I was just extremely bored at my previous job and just needed something to do. So I decided to create a project that I would never actually use in real life. Uh, I never out wound up actually using it in real life, but then told other people it was a good idea to use. Um, so that was uh, there was a few people in town here that rightly gave me uh, some criticism, saying you shouldn't tell people to use this thing that you don't ever use yourself and claim to be an expert on. So after that, with uh, my next one, is I I stopped doing that and said, well, I'll just focus on really building things for myself that I find useful and use open source as a means of letting me use it on more than one project. Yeah, I think it's a good attitude and approach to have, you know, do the right thing, make something that you yourself use and would love and other people will come to it and use it. And that's uh, good really things why will happen from there. Yeah, exactly. And that's why when I look at, you know, my success in open source, I don't I don't look at the number of downloads. That's just kind of a, a kind of a cool thing, but I look at my ability to to use those over and over again. And if they help other people out, that's that's just kind of a bonus. That's just icing on the cake. Um, I do talk about what I build a lot and how I build things because I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, narcissistic, but I feel like we build things well and have a lot of success with them. So I do want to share that. But besides that, yeah, I'm not, I don't, I don't look at the number of downloads. In fact, uh, there are some trappings of those success of the of the number of downloads that um, maybe prevent me from doing, you know, 
really big changes or things like that. Yeah, I don't think talking about uh, the things that you build or successful projects you had is a narcissistic thing. It's more of a, um, I had to climb this mountain and I know the best and shortest way to do it now and I can help other people do it 10 times faster. And right. I want to save them the time and pain from doing it themselves. So do you have any advice for people that are thinking about open sourcing something they have or maybe... Uh, somebody that's, you know, wanting to do this in their work environment and they're not getting the support they need, or maybe they think they're not going to get the support they need? Well, those are two very different questions, Ed. Um, I think the, the first one, when I'm looking at uh, just my own personal experience, um, when I looked at, you know, how, how, what does it take to have a successful open source project? The first thing to do is define for yourself what success means. And if success means getting a whole bunch of downloads, then you're probably setting yourself up for disappointment because that, a lot of that's just out of your hands. And I've just met too many people that, have, that get burnout because they've had this, they have really grandiose plans and they can't see why, you know, I'm taking it personally, like why their idea isn't catching on and why their project isn't catching on. It's just because they have, you know, they, they have plans and goals of things beyond their control. So I focused on things that I can control, which is just, you know, I want to be able to use this on more than one project. And I'm lucky enough to be, well, I'm not lucky enough. I intentionally put myself in a place where I could do these sorts of things. When I was at a place that couldn't do these sort of things, I wasn't happy. So I intentionally moved myself to a place that will allow me to build software in this way. Which I guess answers the second question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there some advice that you could give for somebody that, that maybe doesn't want to change jobs and is just looking for a way to maybe evangelize this to their superiors? Uh, to evangelize open source in general? Yeah, I, I, I've, been, I've been through some companies that uh, don't like open source because they view everything as potential IP. And for a lot of the companies that I work with, um, the things that we typically open source are the kind of the boring parts, like what makes their company different or successful is not the tools they use, but how they use them. And how they use them is the unique business differentiator from other people. So I, I look at it as in, in terms of if what we're building and how we're building it isn't really our secret sauce, then open sourcing it just means that I can get other people to help do the work for me and make it better for myself. Just like I saw with the the whole link thing, that was not something I even thought about doing, but has made a huge impact on what we have uh, for our stuff. So if it's not the like the business differentiator, then I don't see a real, there's not a huge risk in open sourcing. There seem to be much higher uh, returns on that than there are risks. I think that's uh, some great advice. And I really appreciate uh, your time coming on the podcast to talk about uh, AutoMapper and uh, some of the things that you've experienced with it. And um, where can we find uh, your blog and uh, more information about AutoMapper? So I have a website for AutoMapper. Um, it represents the absolute peak of my design abilities, which <laughs> that should hopefully lower your expectations a lot. Um, so you can go to automapper.org, and that has links to the GitHub, to the wiki, to the mailing list, all that sort of stuff, Nuke it, all that junk. That's the easiest place to go to. 
And then on my blog, which is at jimmybogard.lostechies.com, you can also pull up like the, uh, on the tags on the right, you can pull up AutoMapper and see the different ways that I've used it in my projects and, and different things that I'm doing with it. Well, thanks for being part of the show, Jimmy. I appreciate your time. Yeah, of course, Ed. Thanks a lot for having me on. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with Sam Basu and Michael Crump from the Telerik Developer Relations Team. Welcome back. I'm joined by Michael and Sam. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, Ed. Uh, Michael and Sam are joining me to continue the conversation about open source. Uh, we are going to go ahead and talk about the corporate side of open source. Uh, Apple and Microsoft have thrown their hats in the ring of open source. And uh, our own company, Telerk, we have some products that have gone open source. Um, Michael, why don't you start us off uh, with Apple's announcement. They decided they were going to open source parts of Swift. Yeah, exactly. So at uh, the last WWDC, which just happened in June, they announced that Swift 2.0, they were going to open source it. Now there is kind of a catch here, (laughs) because there's only uh, two tiny sections that's going to be open sourced, and that is the compiler, and it's going to be the standard library. Um, so kind of everything else, like the runtime, we're not really sure about right now. And I've actually done some research uh, today to even see if I could find out more info. But it looks like the Swift blog, they're staying kind of quiet right now because they don't want everybody to know because they may be changing their minds. Um, but at least we know that we're going to get those two sections of it. But one thing that is kind of interesting is that even though we know that these two parts of Swift is going to be open sourced, Apple already has a website. It's just opensource.apple.com. And you can go there and you can actually see where they have open sourced uh, some things like the WebKit. Uh, there's some kernels. There's also a couple of frameworks. Um, and you can drill down into um, the different versions of the operating system to developer tools, to parts of iOS, as well as the um, a server. Now, Apple's just... Put, you know, kind of put their toe in the pool, but Microsoft's got a completely different approach, uh, which is, you know, very forward thinking for uh, Microsoft in general. Uh, they've thrown a lot of their ASP.NET stuff open source. Uh, Sam, uh, I know you can talk a little bit more about my, uh, Microsoft and their open source projects. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is, like you were saying, it's a different Microsoft. It's a whole change in mindset, and they are very, very uh, pro-open source nowadays. Uh, As you mentioned, large parts of ASP.NET, the web development platform, has been open source for a while, um, and they are making it open source going forward as well. And even some of the core pieces, like the .NET uh, core, uh, the CLRs, they are all open source. The Roslyn compiler platform, which is how you compile your C-sharp and VB.NET code, that's open source. And most of the cloud stuff, the Azure SDKs, uh, are also open source. So uh, it's a nice, fresh uh, kind of change in the uh, corporate environment uh, and the air in how things are being developed. It's a lot of transparency, and they are very open to accepting uh, community pull requests and making things better for the developer. Yeah, I think I'll add to that a little bit as well, where... Um, not only are they putting their own things out there open source, but they're starting to support uh, open source tooling in their um, Visual Studio environment 
with things like Bower and uh, NPM yeah. for pulling open source packages in, and then of course their own uh, NuGet open source uh, uh, package management system. Yeah, and that's very exciting to see because when they see something is really working well in the open source world, they are not holding you down to use their own things like NuGet or MS Build. I mean, you have seen the Grunt and Gulp integration in Visual Studio, so um, a very fresh uh, change in mindset. Uh, it's it's very developer friendly. So the three of us, we all work for Telerik, and Telerik has also taken some of its products and turned those open source. Uh, one of those is uh, Just Decompile. Um, Michael, tell us a little bit about what we've done with uh, Just Decompile in the open source space. Yeah, so a lot of people have been using Just Decompile as a part of their decompilation engine for .NET code. So obviously you can take C-sharp or VB code and decompile it and see what the source code actually is. So what we decided to do was we decided to take the actual underlying engine, so the just decompile engine, and we open sourced it. And we've already put it on GitHub, so it's just github.com forward slash Telerik forward slash just decompile engine, which we'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can go there and you can actually download the whole engine and there's a solution file that you can bring up inside of Visual Studio and uh, with that you can go ahead and start um, decompiling uh, executables and inside of the readme that's in the uh, github repo they've actually posted a link to one of my kind of getting started post where I decided to dig into the to the just decompile engine and start using it so if you're completely new to this which I was when I first started uh, you can read my blog post um, and learn more information and kind of get started with that so so just keep in mind the just decompile engine itself is completely open source we're accepting pull request the GUI part of it is not open source but in order to use all the functionality, all of that you really needs the engine there. And that that uh, blog post is at developer.telerik.com, and we'll link to that in the show notes for this podcast. Yeah. Um, we have some other open source stuff too. Uh, Kendo UI, our UI for HTML, CSS, and JavaScript is uh, partially open source. And uh, we also have our native script uh, product that's open source. Sam, you want to take us through those two products? Yeah, why not? So like you said, uh, Kenda UI is our um, front-end HTML JavaScript framework, and it's it's extremely popular. It's been around for uh, two, three years now. So uh, it's grown to uh, be quite a bit of a framework. It's got 80 plus uh, UI widgets and lots of framework pieces that you need to build uh, like practical web applications like MVVM support, data binding, and so on, data sources, and so on. So um, I think it was middle of 2014 that we decided it was time to share some love back. So uh, like you said, uh, Kinder UI Core is actually fully open source. And that actually includes all of the framework pieces and even some of the mobile, uh, not some, but in fact, all of the mobile uh, UI widgets that we have that helps you build like hybrid apps. Uh, again, so that's uh, probably 90% of the Kinder UI um, uh, product. And what's not open source is really the ones that we spend a lot of energy and investments into getting it right. Like some of the hard hitting pieces that are really enterprise only, like the Kinder UI grids, the schedulers, some of the really heavy hitting controls which enterprises use uh, to drive f- some of the functionality. So not everything uh, in Kinder UI is open, but most of it is. And again, it's, it's out on GitHub. We do take community polls 
tools. And it, it really is a very, uh, I mean, the web is an open and friendly place. So it's, it's uh, another framework that really drives the point home that you don't have to get uh, your dependencies on 100 different frameworks. Kinda UI possibly does most of what you're looking for in the modern web. So uh, that's Kinda UI. Uh, let me go ahead, maybe uh, talk a little bit about NativeScript because that's something we're excited about. So NativeScript is our new way of doing cross-platform mobile apps. Now we have had uh, other ways of doing cross-platform mobile apps, but the difference here is it's truly a native app that you're writing and that runs cross-platform on iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. So uh, we have built uh, several layers of abstraction in the way you define your UI and in the way you reuse your business logic. It's a very simple XML-based UI and then we offer you data binding and all of that. You write up your business logic in JavaScript and then we compile it that, uh, all of that down and then run it inside of Java virtual machines, JavaScript virtual machines on respective uh, mobile platforms. And again, all of the source and all of the tools that you need to build NativeScript cross-platform apps are actually open source. Um, they do, uh, I mean, we do make tools which uh, bring that into like commercial product and work with it, but you don't absolutely have to. You can completely simply open up your text editor, pull down the files, uh, use the CLI command line interfaces and get started building on mobile apps. Now, not to get too far off subject, um, the native script stuff, those aren't web views, are they? No, no, absolutely not. So, uh, I mean, we, we, are not, uh, we are not against the hybrid web apps. Uh, they really do work well, especially for some uh, line of business and enterprise scenarios. Uh, but that's the whole hybrid web app, uh, mobile app uh, story where you're using like Cordova plugins uh, to make hooks down to the native APIs and then your entire app runs inside of a giant web view. And I mean, to the user, I mean, they really don't uh, notice. And I mean, modern platforms uh, and the modern browsers, mobile browsers have come so far along that you won't even notice nowadays. But if you are really writing something which requires just like down to the millisecond performance, you may be caring about a native app. So this is like truly compiled down to a native code. So when you say in native script, here's a, a list box and I want it to tie, uh, bind it to a list of uh, a collection of items in my source, then we take that code and render it down to a native list box on iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. And that's a uh, little bit of the abstraction magic that we do in native script. And we can find those on GitHub, yep. uh, Kenda UI, and NativeScript. Both. So NativeScript, you begin at nativescript.org, and Kenda UI, again, you can just start with kendaui.com, uh, and it'll just uh, take you where, uh, it'll show you links as to where, and go, uh, where you can go and find this on GitHub. Well, thanks for uh, closing up the show with me, Michael and Sam. Uh, I think that gives us an awesome overview of what uh, some of the corporate uh, entities are doing out in the open source space. And appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank thanks you. for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.